what Jesus has said in the time of uncertainty. And when fears fill our hearts, some respond to fear with anxiety, some with rage, some with anger, and others with violence. <clears throat> For a lot of us, we withdraw from all of this chaos, and some of us even withdraw from life. Um, I know some of you don't even leave your rooms. I want this message to be a message of hope, to bring about a, uh, a new perspective on, in a time like this, how can we find the Lord? How can we find the promises of God had made for us? Job chapter 14, verse 1 said this in Job's anguish, and this is said, Man that is born of a woman is of a few days and full of trouble. This is our allotment. This is who we are. That exciting new thing lasts only for a brief moment. That euphoria, that euphoric feeling, it evaporates. It, it doesn't last. And then you, you, look, you, you hold this brand new thing, or whatever it is, a brand new relationship, a brand new idea in your hand, and you mourn the loss of that euphoric feeling. It's not that thing, but the feeling of joy that you have something that's new, and it's gone. And all we have left is a remnant of a memory that we can't hold on to. We don't know how to get back that joy. The best thing that the world can offer us, and that's what the world offers, it keeps on giving us new things, new experiences. And then we take them, and then they're gone, and then we mourn the losses of those things. And that is what sorrow is. Sorrow is when, you, when that joy doesn't last, when the thing that you have, it evaporates, and there's no way that you can, t you can get back that feeling. And that's what the world gives us. It gives us this momentary relief of some pursuit, and then when we have it, we lose it, and we know we're going to lose it. And we become tired of hearing, and some of, some of us have become, we're we just tired of hearing promises, because we know no one can keep their promises. We take these vows with each other, but we know one day it might change. And so we adapt and we adopt new strategies on psychologically to handle these changing of the promises. Society becomes grumpy. It becomes apathetic and it becomes cynical. And when we hear about hope, about inspiration, about some possible means of achieving some euphoric state, some joy, some happiness, we doubt, we become cynical. And so I know some of you listening to me today, and when I talk about joy, you're skeptical. Is this true? Is there such a thing that can exist in this world? And I can tell you, no, there isn't a thing that exists in this world. This is something that is beyond this world. What I'm telling you here is not of this world, because we are not of this world. We have been saved out of this world and into the kingdom of God. We are messengers, not from this realm. We are messengers from the realm of glory. We have come as messengers. We have come as ministers and children of God to shine a light in this darkness. We don't come from this world. Jesus said, I've, I've called you out of this world. We have a message, and our message cannot be mingled and mixed in with the rest of the world. Otherwise, our message is diluted with what the world can give us. And so we are unable to separate ourselves because we don't know how to discern the differences between what the world can give and what the Lord has given to us. And today I want to take us back to where the church is supposed to be. We are supposed to stand in contrast with the world. There is a divide, the spectrum of darkness that the world has. 
is from gray to black. But we carry with us a spectrum of the glory of God. It's a different world. It's a different light. It doesn't have the same grayness. It doesn't have the same tonality as the world. Jesus walked his disciples through this. His disciples have the same problem. All they see around is destruction and death. And they look at Jesus and they say, there has to be something different here. And Jesus says, yes, there's something different here. But for you to see it, you have to be able to accept my death. You can't see it unless you can see my death. And so his disciples were confused. There was this, they, they, they didn't get it. They didn't get what Jesus is trying to say. Because our concept of happiness is wrong. We don't have a right concept of what happiness is. We can't experience it until we remove ourselves or we deny ourselves. So Jesus walked his disciples through what I call the three stages from sorrow to joy. Let's look at the first stage, sorrow. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. This is Christ's promise. This is what he promised the disciples and all those who follow in the disciples' footstep. And I believe as a church, we have a history and we have a lineage of those who walk into and go into this path that the Lord has gone into. And we must understand that this is something that is different, different than our concept, our notion of what it means to have joy and to be happy. So the stage one sorrow, and ye now therefore have sorrow. He begins by saying, you have sorrow. He doesn't try to say, well, you don't have it if you think a certain way. He begins by saying, you are living in it. You have sorrow. You are born in sorrow. You're born in sin, and every one of us is born in sorrow. We are born with this flesh, and in this flesh is sin, and where sin is, there is death, there's sorrow, and there's sadness. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart wherein he had labored under the sun. For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief, yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. King Solomon concluded that all of our labor is in vain. There is nothing that man can do that brings him happiness. He has all the riches in the world. And he said, when he thought about it, who am I leaving these riches for? My kingdom, my glory, my fortunes. What does it amount to? We're filled with grief when we think about our end. What happens in the end? When all your investment and everything that you have invested in financially, even educationally, in the end, who do you leave it to? What will your children be? How do you know how they're going to turn out? We see a great prophet, the great judge, Samuel, his two sons. You, even someone who has so much authority and, and power ordained by God, there's nothing we can do. A lot in this life is sorrow. And the one who had it all, King Solomon, said, it's vanity. It doesn't mean anything. What is the root cause of our sorrows? John chapter 16, verse 6. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow had filled your heart. This gives me comfort. 
Because when I read Jesus, I don't understand. And why does that give me comfort? It gives me comfort because Jesus is altogether different than I am. He's not me. And what I think is not his thoughts. And whatever my thoughts and my actions and my decision have brought me to now, it's vanity. And so I, I listen to Jesus. I don't understand. That's a good thing. Because if I understand Jesus, when I do understand Jesus, there's hope. Because he's not like me. His thoughts is not my thought. There is something that we can learn and go beyond where we are. When Jesus is different, it's a good thing. But yet, we have a wrong concept of happiness. And so when Jesus tells his disciples the thing that is hopeful, their heart's filled with sorrow. We have so different constitution than the Lord's. What he said to us is hope and inspiration. When we hear it, we become sorrowful and in grievances. So we search and dig for the truth and maybe some kind of hidden meaning in Christ's word, and we can't find it. And we become perplexed, confused, disturbed, and even we change his word so that it sounds right to us. And we pursue that path until we say, well, that didn't bring me happiness. So that must be wrong. The Lord must be wrong. Jesus must be wrong. Well, what's wrong is we have a wrong imagination. We have our views on what happiness is supposed to be. And so when we hear the, the Bible, when we hear the word of Christ, and it's different from our imagination, we say, no way, it can't be. That's not the Lord. That's not the scripture. And so he said, I've said, I told you these things, and sorrow fill your heart. It's because we don't understand it. We have a different perception of what happiness is. And without this foundation of truth, without knowing that Jesus Christ is altogether different than us, our postmodern, subjective, relativistic morality, what that means is that your morals is good to you, but it's different than someone else. And that's what we're living in today. What is postmodernism? Postmodernism says that everyone is right. There's no need for unity. You don't have to come to a consensus. Diversity. Do we really understand our society? Do we really understand the notion of what it means to have our morals based on ourselves? If we don't have a foundation, if we do not have a unified foundation of truth, then what is right and what's wrong? What's right is what's right to you. Just like in the time of Joshua, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Where did that leave them? We have right now, and I'm not advocating for disrespect, I am preaching the gospel. And you may hear me and you say, well, that jives with my morality. Jesus is different. And I thank God Jesus is different because otherwise we're doomed. If Jesus is just like us, there's no hope for us. But there is a foundation in which we can base our lives on. And it's not this mixed bowl of chaos that we live in. Everyone throws in a little bit of their moral biases and relative morality, and then we mix it up and we distribute it to everyone. And in the end, no one wants to eat it because it's, it's gross. But yet, that's how we as a society heading down. Jesus sounded so foreign, and he sounded downright disturbing to a lot of people when they heard him. 
even to his disciples, and they were offended because of what he said. They were offended. Many people were offended by what Jesus said. And what did he say that made him so offended? Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 16. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. In another passage, he said, Blessed are those who are not offended by my words. The word blessed here means happy. How do you come to a place when you are not offended by Jesus' words? John chapter 15, verse 19. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There's a spiritual divide. On one end is the world, and on the other end is Jesus Christ and his kingdom. If you are trying to be accepted, if you want people to hear your words and like you, then you need to be on this side of the spiritual divide. You need to be on the side of the world because the world loves their own. But if you go over on the other side of the cross to where Jesus is, what you say, people will become offended because you're not of the world and the world hates you because you're not of the world. And when he was the only person on the other side of this spiritual divide, he spoke and people hated him because he's not of the world. And so whatever he said, people became offended. And when the gospel is preached and people come to the knowledge of the truth, then they can begin to hear and have the spiritual ears to begin to hear and receive the spiritual things. And we won't become offended because well, it's the Bible. It's the word of Christ. And we hold on to it as gospel. The world and the Christians are on different spiritual divide. If you're seeking to be accepted by the world, you'll be offended by what Jesus said. But if you are speaking what Jesus is saying, be prepared, be ready. The world will hate you. Now, those who are speaking not from Scripture, but from their own interpretation, like the quotes and stuff like that, I have not, nothing to say. But if you listen to Jesus, his word, and the Scripture, and you are offended, don't change his word. Pray. Turn over your life to the Lord Jesus. Let his spirit begin to work and renew your mind into the mind of Jesus Christ. The world tries to preserve life but it knows it's going to die. Jesus, on the other hand, he offers his life, and his disciples says, no, that's wrong. I'm going through the cross, and Peter says, no. Jesus says we are offended by him because of two reasons. In verse 3 of chapter 16, and these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. Ignorant is the root cause of our sorrows. We are living in darkness because we don't know the way out. We don't know how to turn on the light. Ignorant is the cause of all sorrows because the light has come into the world and the world does not receive the light. And we cannot accept Jesus' words because it means we must forsake ourselves. It means if we believe in Jesus, we have to believe in everything he said. And he said, forsake yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We were born in grief. It's time to leave our 
sorrowful crib and finds Christ. And you thought, I'm going to speak a happy message today, huh? That's, it. That's stage one, sorrow. Let's go to stage two, encountering Christ. And he says, but I will see you again. So he said, in this world, he said, you will have sorrow, but I will see you again. Now, the change in our state is our encounter with Jesus Christ. When we encounter Jesus, things change because we're no longer in this well, bemoaned state. When in disgrace with fortunes and men's eye, all alone we weep my outcast state. Troubles death heaven with my bootless cries and looked upon myself and cursed my fate. That's where we are. And if there is no hope, there is no way for us to come out, then we live and we are bottled within this sad state. But Jesus says, I will see you again. I will see you again. The promise to meet Jesus Christ, we must confront and reject our current position. Because when Jesus was resurrected, he wasn't resurrected where they were. He was in a tomb, in a different place. They want to see Jesus, then go there. And we saw the women were there. They came there to dress the body of Jesus. They came there to find the dead Jesus, but what they found was the resurrected Lord. See, we have to leave our place. And remember, the women, they woke up early. They set aside a portion of their life and the biggest part, the best part of their life to go find Jesus. The women, all they had was a promise that you will see me again. And maybe they think, well, I will see the body of Jesus. I get to see the body of Jesus. And when they went there, they saw nothing. And then they encounter the resurrected Jesus. The promise Jesus made with his disciples demand that they must believe him. You see, the, the, the women were there, but the disciples were not. The disciples were at home, and when Mary ran to tell the disciples, then they came. But Jesus said, you will see me again. They didn't believe it. Just like many of us today, when Jesus said, you will see me again, what do we do? We sit and we wait. We're willing to be proactive in many areas of our lives, but in the area of seeking Christ, we are so reactive. We're waiting for Christ to show up. Well, Jesus is everywhere, right? So I just wait for him to show up. You will never find happiness. You will never find Christ until you go look for him. We need to go. We need to set out our time. We need to set apart time to go look for Christ. You're in this sorrowful state because you never believe in what he said. If you believe in what he said, then go look for him. You will find him. Go dig and you will find the treasure. If you don't, you won't find it. And you continue to bemoan your outcast state. To believe in Jesus means to believe everything he says is true. To believe in a promise means to trust that person who made a promise will fulfill it. If you search him, if you look for him, you will find him. Isn't that what the Bible says? Seek and ye shall find. Do you not say that you just sit there and it will appear to you? It says seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Ask and it shall be given. If you believe in Jesus, then ask, seek him. Knock on his door day and night. Remember the story of the importune woman that keep asking the judge, you need to settle my, my cause. And the judge had to settle her, her cause. To believe, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that you will see Jesus? Are you living in a state of darkness, of sorrowful? You haven't seen him. If you encounter Jesus, there's joy. There's joy when you're in the midst of darkness. 
when people mistreat you, there's joy. You're not of this world. There's peace that transcends anything that comes into your life. Two chapters back, John chapter 14, verse 3. Here's his promise. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. This is his promise. Is your life and how you are living a preparation for his return? This is his promise. Do you believe it? Do you believe that he will come again? Or you think just like what Peter says? For some says, has been a long time. He's not going to return. Is your life reflecting your belief in this promise? Do you believe that Jesus Christ will come back? Now, I'm not telling you to be like the Millerites. Go up into the mountain and, and wait. We have a mandate. We need to go and evangelize. We need to tell people. But we need to believe that he is coming. Otherwise, we'll just sit there and pine our lives away. But before we can reach the second coming of the Lord, we need to talk about his resurrection first because that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about his second coming. He's talking about his resurrection. When he said, I will see you again, this is the testament of Jesus' perfect faith toward his father. You see, Jesus was born of a woman. He was filled with sorrow, just like us. Now, in his divine nature, he is not affected by passion. He's not sad. He's not happy. He is perfect. He's good. He's always happy. But in his human nature, he is sad. He cries, just like us. And he knows death is that final end to both his divinity and his humanity will die on that cross. He knows that. But he also believed what the Father has said, that I will not leave your body in the grave. He believed that. And by looking at Jesus and saw how he had perfect faith in the Father, and this is what he said in Hebrew 12 too. He said, looking unto Jesus, or the author says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy... See, not before the cross, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Joy doesn't come on this side of the cross. When you are unwilling to live a sacrificial life for God, you're unwilling to give up your life for God, there is no joy. When Jesus made the choice of taking his cross and go to Calvary, he saw the joy that was beyond the cross, that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The second stage of our journey toward enduring joy demands that we must believe and we must act in according to what we believe. Jesus believed that the Father will raise him up. Paul says, He that raised up Jesus from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is a spirit that dwells in you and if you die, that spirit will quicken, meaning will make you alive again. Do you believe that? I'm advocating for a supernatural, not the natural. There's a world that we don't see, spiritual world that's beyond us. Do you believe that there is a supernatural touch of God that, that overcomes our senses and our ability to, to feel Jesus says, I will see you again. Do you believe it? If you believe it, it's time to get up early. It's time to rise out of our ashes. 
and go live for Jesus. Otherwise, there is no joy. We will never find joy until we take up the cross and follow him. I will see you again, Jesus says. He promised. Do you believe in that promise? We need to come to where Jesus is found. And Jesus is found at the cross. Jesus is found at the cross, not on some palace, not at some fun and exciting place, only last temporarily. We must endure. The Lord is there waiting for us. Stage three. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Christ has complete authority over everything. Even in the natural, Christ has complete authority. Everything that you see here, Christ, Jesus Christ, has complete authority. Because the Bible says, all authority has been given to him. All authority. There's a story in Luke chapter 10, verse 42. A story between two sisters. And this is not unlike how our society is divided today. There's one side you have Martha, and on the other side you have Mary. And on the in industrial side, on the one that looks and behaves how the world expects you to behave. You got a guest coming, you serve the guest. And Jesus came. And instead of serving the guest, one of the sisters sat there and listened to him. And the other sister came and says, Lord, this is wrong. Isn't this morally wrong? I mean, she, she left all this work for me to do, for me to do. And she just sat there and listened to you. Make her. Turn away. Tell her to come and help me. And this is what Jesus says. But one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part. Now here's the part where I want to emphasize. Which shall not be taken away from her. When you put your trust in Jesus, you are standing against the norm of society. People will even accuse you of immoral or amoral. Well, you know what? Jesus defended Mary. She didn't have to say a word. Jesus defended her. No one takes it away from her. You can't put the cart before the horse. You don't know what to do until you learn Jesus. There is no work in the kingdom of God and for God unless God has shown you, has given you a rebirth in the kingdom of God. Then you can do work. All the works are dead works. They are of the world. They belong to the world. Come to Jesus first. He will protect you. He will advocate for you. And talk about advocation. You know that you have an accuser? I have many accusers. We all have accusers. Accusers are those who rail against you, who prosecute you, who say things about you. And to them and to other people, they might be true. The Bible tells you of an accuser. John says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, an accuser which accused them before our God day and night. That's the devil. The devil accuses you. That was the devil accused Mary before Jesus. There is perfect and eternal joy in Christ because you know he loves you. Come to him.
He protects you. He will defend you. You know, when Mary made that choice against the cultural norm of her day, to sit at Jesus' feet, Christ's authority covered her. You don't have to say anything. Jesus Christ will defend you. Jesus Christ will defend you from your accusers. Jesus Christ will defend you from the accuser of the brethren. The source of this accusation comes from the devil himself. That old accuser that accused Eve will come back and accuse you. And here's what the Apostle Paul says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who maketh intercession for the saints. It is Jesus Christ who will defend us. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be scared. You don't need to say anything. You don't need to defend yourself. Jesus Christ gave his life for us. He will defend us. He makes intercession for us. That's joy. That will allow you to lay down at night and be at peace. That is joy. That's joy when all this chaos is over. I'm still with the Lord. Like the psalmist says, when I wake low, I am still with thee. Rejoice, Christians. Rejoice. You're not under the bondage of sin that you should be afraid of Satan's accusations against you. When you hear that, you know, Satan was not going to speak to you directly. But Satan will use other people to speak to you or to speak against you, to accuse you. If you are in the Lord, if you find yourself at the feet of Jesus, you don't have to worry. There is perfect peace in the presence of Jesus. He will rise up and he will defend you. No one takes this away from her. No one takes this away from her. No one takes the joy away from those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. No one will take this joy away from you. Run to Jesus. The devil and his army cannot rise up against the Lord. He has conquered. Jesus has won the victory. He will keep the devil at bay. He will keep those accusations. You may hear them, but they do not affect your soul. They don't come into you because there's joy abundant because you know you have been loved by Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Whom having not seen ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith even the salvation of your soul. It is ultimately love that gives us joy. It's love that makes us sad the most, right? especially when those you love hurt you. But on the other side, it's love that binds us and gives us everlasting joy. It's the love of Jesus Christ, knowing that he lives to intercede for us. He defends us. He calls us out of darkness and into his light. And he embraces and he does not let us go. You know, in this life, we'll never see Jesus. Peter says, you'll never see it, him. Yet, we're filled with joy because there's the love of Jesus Christ in you. There's that peace that's beyond what we can articulate and formulate with language. Enduring joy does not exist in the things that we can possess. When you have nothing and you don't want anything, because the nothing that you possess 
you hold on to, then will you be at perfect peace. Everlasting joy is the promise of our Savior. Do you believe his promise? You know, in this darkness, the love of Jesus transcends our natural senses. It covers us eternally from the inner condemnation and the outer accusations. If your conscience does not condemn you, Jesus doesn't. Do you believe in Jesus' promise? Do you trust that he will never leave you nor forsake you? Do you believe that nothing can take away the joy that he has bestowed upon you? We must first find him. He will give you the joy, and he will be the author and the finisher of your faith. I want to end with this quotation from Romans chapter 8. Before I read it, I want to encourage you to take the word of God and memorize it, put it into your mind. Because you are not in control of what you hear. You never are in control of what you hear. And unfortunately, people, a lot of times, are not in control of what they say. And they are being coerced, or they are being manipulated to say many things. But one thing you do have, and that you have the promises of God. And if you take the promises of God and internalize the words of the Lord, then even in the face of accusations and condemnation, just recite it in your mind. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the promise that I hold on to. That is the promise that erase every other doubt, every other accusations and voices and condemnation come. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Come to the love of Jesus. No one will separate you from the love of Jesus. Father, be glorified through your word today. May your son be lifted in our thoughts, in our minds, in our hope, and be our inspiration. Be the joy that brings us closer to Jesus Christ into the inner sanctum of his holiness. That we will be standing in the sun. That we will run back to you at, in all times, Lord God, and find there is perfect joy that no one can take away from us. And it's the joy that you give us and you protect us within that joy. Father, I pray that as a church, as a body, in this time of uncertainty, in this time of so much confusion, there's only one thing that is sure, that stood the test of time, and that is your gospel, that is your word, and that is our knowledge of the Father and of you. Lord, may we come into that place where we hold on to you, sit at your feet, and enjoy your presence. Lord, may, may we partake of that sweet communion and usher us, Lord God, into the new place 
a new realm, a new reality for our minds, our hearts, and our faith. And when we do speak, Lord, we speak the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.